In Proverbs chapter 3, wise King Solomon admonishes us to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and to not lean on our own understanding. Last week, we celebrated All Saints Sunday, remembering those who have left a legacy of trusting the Lord. And today, we're back to ordinary time on the church calendar. I'm personally grateful for ordinary time because my life feels pretty ordinary most of the time. When we read about the giants of the faith, we can easily forget, I think, that they were really ordinary folks who made choices either to trust in God or to lean on their own understanding. Last week, we watched King Saul lean away from God and Samuel calling him out for his failure to trust God enough to obey. This week, we're going to travel back on the timeline about a thousand years earlier to Abraham, an ordinary guy whose faith journey is marked with moments of leaning on his own understanding and moments of leaning into Yahweh against overwhelming odds. The Bible is painfully honest in the telling of Abraham's story. And in doing so, it offers us a learning curve that I think can challenge us and can give us hope as we stumble a bit through our own faith journeys. So we're going to jump into Abraham's story kind of late in his life at the point of his biggest test of faith. And you'll find that in Genesis chapter 22. It's on page 20 of your Bibles, Pew Bibles, so not very far to turn in. I'm going to break this into three sections for us. Um, so I'll begin by reading verses 1 through 6 of Genesis chapter 22, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. After these things, in a few minutes we'll talk about what these things refers to. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, Here I am. God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. I don't know about you, but every time I read that, I feel like all the oxygen just got sucked out of the room. I just want to scream, no, say it isn't so. Please tell me God did not say that to Abraham. Nothing about this story makes sense to me. It, it doesn't even sound like the God I know from the rest of the Bible. And at first glance, I think this story presents God in a rather bad light. Is he a sadistic deity who enjoys watching his people suffer? The story is just fraught 
with difficulty, not just for Abraham, but I think for us as well. I think it raises troubling questions for us about our understanding of God. And more than one Bible scholar has admitted that they have wished this chapter was not in the Bible. So why is it front and center in the first book of the Bible where no Bible reader can miss it? And like, who's going to read any further, right? Who would want a God like this? It is clearly not intended as a seeker-friendly device. <laughs> Therefore, it must be here to help those of us who have already declared our faith and trust in God. To help us sort out what trusting God means when we cannot make sense of things. When things seem impossible. When excruciating life circumstances rise up and stand poised to erode our faith. I suggest that this story stands front and center in the first book of the Bible because the Bible is a book painstakingly set in reality. And this story deals with a basic universal reality that the world turns upside down for faithful believers more often than we think it should. Those moments, sometimes stretching into seasons in our lives, leave us asking, why me? How long must this go on? Where is God, and is he even paying attention? Well, in the opening line, we see that God is paying attention. The narrator lets us in on something that even Abraham himself doesn't know. The narrator tells us that God has come to test Abraham. Sort of like that annoying beep on your radio or television. This is a test. This is only a test. But when we hear that from the narrator, we can sort of, as readers, go, okay, just got a little oxygen back in the room. We can breathe enough at least to stay in the story. We don't need to evacuate immediately. It's just a test. But Abraham doesn't know this. There's no siren. There's no thunder and lightning. God just comes to Abraham rather matter-of-factly and calls his name. And Abraham's ready answer reveals to us that he's not startled by God calling his name. He apparently is used to communicating with God on a pretty regular basis, perhaps much in the same way that Adam walked with God in the garden or that Jesus went to a garden seeking a quiet place to commune with his father on a regular basis. So we, we gather from this that Abraham's ordinary daily life has fostered an intimacy with God and a consistent faith. Not the kind of faith that is just ratcheted up once in a while for an important event, but a real consistent daily walk with God. So Abraham's immediate response is, here I am. Where have we heard this before? God calling somebody's name and that person responding, here I am. Samuel. Samuel. Back in September, Chris preached that sermon about Samuel growing up in the temple with Eli and hearing God call his name and running to Eli to say, here I am. And how many times in that story did God call his name and Samuel answered, here I am. 
Three times. Three times. So here we have it in this story. Guess how many times? We'll have it three times. So watch for that. In fact, it is the very same Hebrew word that occurred in the Samuel story. The here I am phrase is one word in Hebrew, and the word is hineni. It's a word that does not appear very often in the Old Testament. It appears only in this story, the Samuel story, and one time in the book of Isaiah. So that alone would bring attention to itself for a Hebrew reader. A Hebrew reader would set up and go, oh, oh, hineni. That's an unusual word. It also has an unusual nuanced meaning which would draw attention to itself. It isn't the usual way you would answer someone calling your name like, hi, here, yeah, yeah. It's a, a much bigger, deeper meaning than that. It, it carries a meaning like, I'm attentive, I'm ready to listen and obey. I'm at your service. I'm here for you. It's that kind of an extended meaning. So that word would draw a lot of attention to itself. Further, the repetition is the ancient narrator's tool of emphasis. Just as we might use bold or italic font or underlining, they really didn't have those options. So using this word in the same kind of call-response pattern three times in both of these stories is part of the literary genius of the Bible. It's a clue to us as readers that these two stories are thematically connected. Even though they're happening a hundred years apart in Israel's faith history, both of these stories represent really powerful, significant turning points in Israel's faith history. So they can be read in stereo for a certain meaning. And the narrator is signaling us as readers in this way by using this word three times in both stories. The narrator says, stop and think about this. Because guess what? What is about to happen in Abraham's life is directly related to the challenges that the children of Israel are going to face during Samuel's life. Here was Samuel bringing in the monarchy, kings for Israel, who were supposed to be models of faith and obedience for the people. And we saw Saul failing at that in our, in our lesson last week. But here in Abraham, the narrator is saying, is a model to pay attention to. Here in Abraham is a model for Israel's kings, for Israel's priests and Israel's prophets to consider, and thus, I think, for us to consider as well. So let's get into it. Immediately, we are repulsed at the reading of this story, I think, because the thought of child sacrifice at the center of the story is just like, can't go there. In both the Old and New Testaments, human sacrifice in any form is never a part of worshiping Yahweh. Never. Abraham's God, Yahweh, has always stood apart from the pagan gods that were worshipped in the ancient world around them. So that makes this request in the form of a command seem utterly impossible. 
especially since Isaac is the promised son, the long-awaited fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. So on top of the horror of human sacrifice, we wonder if Yahweh is a God who cannot really be trusted. Is he a God who makes pie-crust promises that we cannot count on? What in the world is God up to here? Why would he ask something that would shatter his own divine plan? What was God's plan? Well, after the flood, instead of giving up on fallen humanity, God has moved forward with Noah's descendants toward a plan to provide a savior to take care of the sin problem and redeem humankind and all of creation. At this point in time, God's plan hangs on the hinges of his covenant relationship with this man, Abraham. Abraham is a faithful follower of Yahweh, and Yahweh has promised that Abraham's descendants will become a great nation, more than you could count, a great nation through whom God will pour out his blessings on all the nations of the world. All humanity will be blessed through this great nation that will come from Abraham's seed. And to that end, ultimately through Abraham's seed will come God's own son, Jesus, the savior of the world. So God is staking everything on Abraham and on his promised son, Isaac. Why then this illogical command? Is God just a sadistic monster who wants to take pleasure in his suffering? Well, nothing, nothing in scripture would support that. So we have to reject that conclusion. Then it must be that God, who has staked everything on Abraham, has reason to doubt whether his chosen servant, Abraham, is staking everything on God. Or perhaps God recognizes that Abraham is at a place in his faith journey where Abraham himself needs to know, needs to demonstrate to himself, if not to God, that he is 100% all in with Yahweh. Perhaps they both need to know, beyond a shadow of a doubt. And that is covenant in its fullest sense, Mutual trust. You see, Abraham has had some hiccups on his faith journey. And that's what the narrator is referring to in his opening line. After these things, God tested Abraham. These things are the backstory that has been played out in the previous 10 chapters. I'm not going to stand here and read those chapters for you. God had promised that Abraham's wife, Sarah, who was barren, would have a son. Clearly, it would take a miracle. But God hadn't said exactly how long it was going to take. So after some years, when Sarah aged out, well past childbearing years, with no sign of a pregnancy, Abraham reminds God that he is still childless. He says, Lord, you have given me no children so my faithful male servant Eliezer will become my legal heir. And in that 
conversation, we sense that Abraham is indicating that he will resign himself to be content with this and consider his servant as good as a son to him, like an adopted son. But God lets him know he is not interested in any plan B. He tells Abraham that Eliezer is not the son of promise, will not take the place of the son of promise, and that a son will come from Abraham's loins. Scripture tells us that Abraham believed God and that God counted his faith as righteousness. But after 10 years have passed and still no pregnancy, Sarah came up with plan C. Abraham, my husband, I got it. Give me a son by sleeping with my maid, Hagar. Then I can claim the son. You will have an heir from your own loins, and all will be well. Well, this sounded better than a servant as an heir. So Abraham did what Sarah asked, and Hagar's son Ishmael was born. As would be expected, discord erupted between the two women in the same tent, both laying claim to the same baby, and that's never pretty. God said to them, Ishmael is not the son of promise. God was still on plan A. Even though the years were ticking by and Abraham and Sarah were still hanging in limbo, and 15 more years went by after that, a total of 25 years before God delivered that long-awaited miracle and Sarah at age 90 delivered her baby boy, Isaac, the son of promise according to God's plan. Now we read this story in a few minutes. And we think, God came through. God is really a God who can do the impossible. But if we had been living it for 25 years, who among us could have imagined and kept imagining for 25 long years that God would do it, wondering when or if he would make good on his promise? But God did the impossible. The new son in the household arrives and is the rightful heir and displaces Ishmael as heir apparent. And of course, the tension in the tent reaches a breaking point. And God, in his mercy, instructs Abraham to cast out Hagar and Ishmael, promising that he, God, will take care of them. And he does. It is right after these things that our story begins in chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham. Even though Abraham's attempts to get an heir by his own design might seem reasonable to us, I think we might be able to justify them by human logic, they were not God's plan. Doing the impossible, it turns out, was God's plan. And God designs designs this way for Abraham to demonstrate now whether he has learned through all these things to trust God for the impossible and to trust God in the impossible. It's a hard ask. It's an impossibly hard ask. And on top of that, God creates a bit of limbo again. The exact destination where this is to happen is TBD, to be determined not by Abraham, 
but by God. Abraham must depend on Yahweh as his compass for his every step. The narrator plays out each step of Abraham's preparation almost in slow-mo. Did you catch that? He rises early in the morning. He saddles his donkey. He cuts the firewood. He sets out with his son and two servants. Abraham is moving almost like a robot. So is this blind faith, we might ask? Abraham's just doing whatever he needs to do to do this horrible thing. Is it blind faith? I suggest no, that it's not blind faith because God has a long track record with Abraham and Abraham has learned to trust Yahweh at a new level. This God who eventually did deliver on plan A when it seemed impossible can now be trusted in this new challenge that also seems impossible. Not blind faith, I think it's eyes open faith but we sense a very guarded determination on Abraham's part, as though in his eyes open faith, he has in a way put blinders on. Blinders are what horses wear when their drivers don't want them to be scared or startled or distracted by something on the periphery that could cause them to bolt or to wander off the course. So I think we get the same sense here in Abraham's deliberateness that he has of his own volition, in a way, put blinders on so that he will look only straightforward and not deviate from God's instructions. One way we know this is there is no conversation with Sarah. None. He gives her no opportunity to try to talk him out of this. A second indicator we have that he's kind of got blinders on is that he doesn't take along any backup. He doesn't take along a lamb for a backup offering, hoping he can maybe talk God into altering the plan. A third indicator is when they get to the mountain of God's choosing, he leaves the servants behind and doesn't really give them all the full details of what he and Isaac are going to do at the top of that mountain. He knows they might try to talk him out of it when they realize what is really happening, so he leaves them down at the bottom. We're seeing an Abraham who is all in at this point. He is resolved that this time, God's way is the only way. And the narrator's lens right here focuses in on father and son. And it is on their trek up the mountain together, the two of them, that Abraham utters for the second time, Hineni, here I am. Let's read it in the next section, verses 7 through 10. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and Abraham said, here I am, my son. Isaac said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order 
and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Once again, all the oxygen just went out of the room for me. Isaac packs the firewood. Abraham carries the knife and a pot of burning coals to start the fire. And Isaac says, Father. And Abraham answers, Here I am, my son. Now, if you're reading in the NIV, I think it's translated, Yes, my son. But it, in fact, is the same word in Hebrew, Hineni, Here I am, my son ready to respond to you as your loving father. We see Abraham attentive to his son in the same way that he is attentive to God, as though he somehow intuits that something more is going on here in this father-son relationship than meets the eye. And Isaac's question, which no doubt has been anticipated, is basically, we've got the burnt part of the burnt offering, Dad. Where's the offering part? It's been three days since they left home early that morning. We can only imagine the inner turmoil and anguish that Abraham has been experiencing for three days. I I'm just amazed that he's able to respond to Isaac in any coherent manner at all. And I'm also amazed by the wording he chooses because it is so prophetic. His answer reflects a calm resignation to doing God's will. And he says to Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb. Indicating at this point, I think, that Abraham has put the ball in God's court completely. The events of this day are of God's design. Abraham isn't messing with it. There is no indication yet at this point that Abraham knows how this will end. But what Abraham does know is that it must be done on God's terms. On God's terms. Here is where we realize how this event is strikingly different, strikingly different from any of the child sacrifice going on in the pagan world around them. I really want to clarify this, because th this event cannot even be put in the same category. In pagan cultures, men made sacrifices of their own selfish design to appease their deity, to earn favor, in hopes of getting a bountiful crop or victory in war. And human sacrifice was considered to be the ultimate effort to influence the will of a deity. That is not at all what is going on here between Abraham and Yahweh. Abraham is not initiating this to earn God's favor. He's not initiating it at all. This is God's design, not Abraham's. What is, it, what is at work here is, is a matter of trust, not a need to manipulate. And this trust works in both directions, binding Yahweh to Abraham and Abraham to Yahweh. Some theologians consider Abraham a model of unquestioning passive obedience. 
But I think that makes him little more than a servile criminal. I suggest to you that Abraham is a more complex character than that. For instance, he has debated with God over the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah on behalf of his nephew Lot and Lot's family. Abraham was not afraid to stand up and hold God accountable in being true to his divine character in that episode. So I don't write Abraham off as a passive character or an unquestioning character. Jewish theologian Eliezer Berkowitz describes it this way. He says, Abraham knows only that life and life with God are the same thing. It is simply too late in Abraham's faith journey for him to live apart from God. And so Abraham is incapable of choosing survival, even his child's survival, over life with God. Total, radical trust, complete submission to God is the only thing that makes sense to Abraham at this point. We see at the beginning of the next section that I'm about to read that Abraham has steadfastly remained in the here I am posture. Let's read the final section, verses 11 to 19. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. The third time Abraham utters Hanani is the moment when he is holding the knife in the air, his hand outstretched, and Abraham is leaning into God so completely that he is ready to carry out the deed. And the angel of the Lord calls out, and time stops. At this moment, both God and Abraham know beyond any doubt that Abraham has put his trust in Yahweh. This God who transcends human logic, this God 
who asks what seems impossible. As Abraham has declared to Isaac more prophetically than perhaps he understood at the time, God did indeed provide a lamb for himself on his terms. The ram was not revealed until both God and Abraham understood the depth of their covenant relationship. When my trust in Yahweh, when your trust in Yahweh is weighed in the balance against common sense, against our human affections, against our life ambitions, against even our expectations of God, when we hang in limbo, I hope, I hope that our track record with this faithful, loving God allows us to lean into him enough to say, here I am, Lord. You are beyond my imagination. I have to trust you for the impossible. In the impossible, here I am. A friend recently told me about reading this story to her four-year-old daughter from the Jesus Storybook Bible. When she got to the angel's announcement, her daughter stopped her. Mommy, go back. Read it the other way. What other way? With the knife coming down. But that's not how it happened, honey. I want to know what would happen if the angel didn't stop him. Do it that way, Mommy. Now, I must confess to you, this is a story I never, ever wanted to read to my young children. And I don't know any parent who would voluntarily do the choose-your-own-adventure ending this four-year-old girl was asking for. But she insisted so her mother honored her request, and she narrated the knife coming down with no interruption by the angel, and Isaac was slain, and his blood spilled to the ground. Okay, Mommy, I just wanted to know. Now read it the way God really did it. This little girl was willing to go to a place most of us want to avoid when we read this story. She was grappling with the gravitas of what Abraham's obedience really meant, of the incalculable risk that both God and Abraham were taking with one another. This story when read closely, shows us a God who is not a sadistic deity, but a God who actually loves so much that he makes himself vulnerable to the most extreme degree. He is not asking Abraham to do anything that God is not willing to do himself. 
Yes, God required Abraham to wait 25 years for Isaac, but God will wait even longer. God will wait 2,000 more years before bringing forth his beloved son, Jesus. Isaac was the son of promise to Abraham. Jesus will be the son of promise, the one in whom God the Father delights. Like Isaac, Jesus will carry wood up a hill in the shape of a cross. And like Isaac, Jesus will be bound to that wood in quiet submission to his Father's will. God spared Isaac and provided a sacrifice lamb in the bushes, but God does not spare his own son, who is the sacrifice lamb, foreshadowed in this story. We could feel as we read Abraham's anguish as he anticipates forsaking his son and giving him up to death. God the Father will actually endure that anguish all the way to fulfill his promise of atonement for humankind, atonement for our sin. For God the Father and his only begotten son, the knife came down and Jesus' blood was spilled. This is the new covenant between God and his people. In a few minutes, we will celebrate that covenant by partaking of the bread and the wine, symbols of the body and blood of Christ, the Lamb of God sacrificed for us, ordinary people, called to trust in God in ways we might not be able to imagine on our own so that he can bless the world through us. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you are indeed a faithful God, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you are a God who keeps your promises even when we can't see how. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would remind us of the ways you have been faithful to us to strengthen our faith. And that above all, we would remember that you are good all the time. In your precious name we pray, amen.